You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. On Thursday, uh, uh, I went. Um, I went to the doctor for my for my annual well visit. Uh, it's just a routine physical. Uh, this is one of my least favorite days of, of the year uh, when I go to do that. It's not that I don't like my doctor. I do. I really like him a lot. It's just that I don't like being examined. Uh, when you, from the moment you get there, they're, they're sticking needles in your arm to pull out blood. They're handing you a little cup and pointing you down the hall and saying the bathroom's down there. And they're getting, they're getting you up on a scale. Uh, and they're writing down how much you weigh. And they're asking you really personal questions. And then they take your blood pressure. And then they're mumbling these numbers as they write them down. And for the life of me, I can never remember what those numbers mean. It's like, is that good? Yeah, 100-something over something, is that good? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's good. And then they have you come and they, they have you sit in this really cold room. It's like a meat locker uh, in there. And, and then they, they make you sit up you know, on the padded table with the butcher paper that, that they pull down anew for you. And, they, and you have to sit there and wait for the doctor. And, and I hate this wait uh, because I'm, I'm not sick, but for some reason I'm just really nervous. I'm like, why am I so nervous waiting for him to walk through that door? And then finally, I just stare at the door, and finally the door opens, and the doctor comes in, and we catch up like we're old friends, even though we only see each other for like five and a half minutes a year. Uh, but we're like, hey, how you been, how you been? And, and, and then the examination, right? I hate that day for some reason, but, but I faithfully do it every year. I faithfully go every year, and here's why. I want to hear the doctor say, all is well, <laughs> right? You're doing good. Keep up what you're doing, all is well. And I, I believe the doctor's diagnosis because he has the authority to make that diagnosis. All is well, and that's what I'm looking for. Now, I don't know if you noticed when Jimmy was reading, but Jesus compares himself uh, to a doctor today in our story, uh, to a f- physician. It's a really good metaphor for him because I think that, that, that image or that metaphor tells us a lot about the mission of Jesus, but also tells us how we are to relate to Jesus. Uh, as a church this fall, we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew, and we are looking at um, what we're calling just personal encounters that real people have with Jesus. And these encounters are not just stories for us, they're actually paradigms. They're, they're patterns or models of how we should, uh, should relate to Jesus. So they teach us a lot about Jesus. What would he say? What would he do? What has he done? What's he like? Uh, But they also teach us a lot about ourselves, right? They shine a light on our desires, our needs, our expectations, uh, what we're looking for. Sometimes they shine a light on our sin, on our misunderstanding of Jesus, uh, on our need for grace. And so it's really important for us to look at them and and discover, how do I relate to Jesus in a firsthand way? Today's encounter in Matthew chapter 9, I think essentially gives us the mission statement uh, and, and just an encapsulated way, the mission statement of Jesus, right? If, if Jesus were a doctor, this would be like an abbreviated form of his Hippocratic oath, right? What he's committed himself to, what is his mission? And so I want to look at three aspects in, in our story today of the mission of Jesus. Number one, what does he do? Number two, why does he do it? And number three, how does he do it? So what's he do? Why does he do it? And then how does he do it? All right, look at Matthew uh, chapter 9. Let's start with what he does. 
We see it in these first two verses in Matthew 9, verses 9 and 10. Uh, these, these two verses illustrate for us or give a picture of what Jesus does in his mission. Verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. All right, there's two things going on here uh, in in these two verses. We have Matthew's calling, and then we have Matthew's party, right? And these these two things are related. They're connected. But what's typical of Matthew is he doesn't give us a lot of detail about the story, how how it happened. He he doesn't really paint a vivid picture uh, of what just happened here. Uh, We saw this in our story last week when Jesus healed the paralytic. He just gave us the bare bones of the story. Today's story is autobiographical. Matthew's writing about himself, so you think he played up a little more, right? Because we like to talk about ourselves. We remember the details about our own life. He doesn't do that. For some reason, Matthew tends to be most interested and making a theological point about Jesus and not giving like a flowery human interest story. But I think it's, it's important for us to pause and think about the details and the implications of Matthew's calling and Matthew's party because they tell us a lot about the what of the mission of Jesus, right? So think about Matthew's calling for a few, uh, few minutes. It's there in, in verse 9. Did you notice that Matthew is at work when Jesus calls him? He's sitting at the tax booth. He's, at the, he's up at the office. He's not at church. He's not in prayer. He's not meditating deeply on Scripture and having a quiet time. He's just in a regular work day up at the office, and that's where Jesus finds him, and that's where Jesus calls him and says, follow me. Now, this is a really, really unusual and a really surprising recruiting decision on Jesus' part because Jesus is here calling Matthew to be one of his key guys one of his 12 apostles, one of his 12 uh, disciples. But for Jesus or anyone to associate with a tax collector in those days was unheard of, right? Uh, It it, it would be terrible for Jesus' reputation to be seen with a guy like Matthew. It would be like social suicide for Jesus if he's seeking to be a respected moral teacher and moral leader uh, in those days. Um, I was trying to think of an equivalent of what it would be like in our day uh, to what Jesus is doing here. And, and all I can think of is, is that for Jesus to associate with a tax collector in those days is equivalent in, in our day of him associating with like a tax collector, right? I'm, I'm only kidding. Some of you may be one of those. I'm only kidding. We actually have to get that thought out of our mind, our, our conception of what a tax collector is to, order to understand this text, In these days, a tax collector was not like a nerdy guy in a suit who's poring over tax code and and running numbers and auditing people. Uh, Matthew and all tax collectors worked for an occupying government, Rome, who was occupying the land of Israel at the time, and they were truly collectors, right? One uh, commentator said that that, that the job of Matthew or any tax collector was to separate you from your money. Right? So in those days, they would have seen a tax collector as someone more like Tony Soprano, right? a mafia guy, or a drug dealer who was trying to kind of get you apart from your money in an unfair and sometimes in a violent way. Right? These guys were not well thought of. It wasn't like we think of when we just think of a guy who's writing tax code. 
tax collectors were working, as I said, for uh, this despised occupying government, Rome, and they had betrayed their people uh, to get wealthy themselves. Because, see, Rome was paying them a salary, but they were known to take more tax than they needed to to line their own pockets. So they were taking advantage uh, of their own people. Greed is what drove them in their occupation. In other words, the more uh, transactions they had at the tax booth, the more they could line their own pockets, the more they could skim off the top for themselves. And so uh, tax collectors were seen as self-centered like swindlers. They were extorting people. They were corrupt. Uh, They were taking advantage of normal people. They were taking advantage of the poor, and they had the backing, the full force backing of the Roman Empire behind them while they did that, right? uh, These were rotten people. Uh, There's a reason that in the New Testament we have this little phrase, tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors and sinners. Because you had the tax collectors, and then you had all the other sinners. But the tax collectors got their own category, right? They were on par with murderers and robbers. They, They were just rotten people. But Jesus calls one of these guys to be on his team. It's incredible. He, he calls them to, to be a part of his, his group. And it's not accidental. It's not like Jesus is like, oh man, I missed that part on Matthew's resume. What, he's a tax collector? Whoa, I didn't even notice that. It's very deliberate, right? It's very prayerful. Luke tells us that Jesus spends all night in prayer before he, he selects his disciples. It's very deliberate. Right, so I want you to be encouraged. If your background is in greed, then take heart. Jesus is looking for people like you, right? If you have a record of selfishness, then take heart. Jesus is looking for people like you. Like if you have manipulated people for your own gain, if you have rejected virtue, if you've ever done anything dishonest, take heart. Jesus is looking for people like you. That's who he's coming for. It's evidenced even more uh, in Matthew's party. Look at verse 10. So interesting. Matthew doesn't just follow Jesus and then ditch all his friends. He actually brings Jesus to meet his friends. Uh, He invites Jesus into his social circles, into his world. Let me read verse 10 again. It says, as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So Luke tells us that this is Matthew's house uh, and that these are Matthew's friends uh, at this dinner, at this great feast, at this party that's happening. So think about it. If Matthew is a despised outcast, if he is a moral untouchable, then who are his friends? Other despised outcasts, other moral untouchables. And so Matthew invites them all over. He invites, he's going to have like a work party, an office party, you know, right? Just, it's going to be awesome. Everybody come over. And then he brings Jesus into this party. He invites Jesus to come over. Isn't that interesting? That, that Matthew uh, would not just become a Christian and then start doing just Christian stuff over here, but rather he would bring, bring Jesus into his normal stuff, into his everyday stuff. He brings Jesus to meet his friends. He's not embarrassed by Jesus. He's like, you got to meet this guy. He's changed my life. You got to meet this guy. So Matthew is a brand new Christian, a brand new follower of Jesus, but he's already engaged in the mission of Jesus. 
So he just brings Jesus over to the house for dinner with all his friends, all the other tax collectors and sinners. And catch this, Jesus is really comfortable with this. He is very comfortable with doing this. Why is that? Because that's his mission. That's what his mission is. Right at the end of our passage today in verse 13, we read this. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came to call sinners. That is my mission. That's what he does. He calls sinners. Right? That's the what. Now, why does he do it? Let's look at verse 11. Why does he call sinners? The Pharisees come along and they ask the question for us. Look at verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus, why are you doing this? Why are you hanging out so comfortably? Why are you hanging out so casually with these really bad people and yet claiming to represent God? It's actually a really good question. It's a really fair question. Sometimes the Pharisees get a bad rap. We just automatically assume they're the bad guys because they're always challenging Jesus, and we think, well, they have nothing to say. But this is actually a really good question, right? And and I think we need to feel what they're feeling before we judge them so harshly. I think we need to cut them a little slack like we needed to cut the the scribes slack last week. Uh, And asking this question, the Pharisees are taking God seriously. Uh, They're taking the Bible seriously. They're taking sin seriously. They're taking righteousness seriously. In other words, they're taking a lot of things seriously that we like to take seriously as Christians. It's, it's a good question. They are reading the Bible, and they're asking, like, how do, what do we do with passages like this, Jesus? Leviticus 20. You, God says, you shall keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, and you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I'm driving out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. You shall, my people shall be holy to me, meaning set apart to me. For I, the Lord, am holy, and I have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So they're reading the Old Testament, they're thinking it seems to be that holiness is by separation. Psalm 26, this is King David, a man after God's own heart. Uh, The king in whose line Jesus, the Messiah, uh, would come. This is what David says. In Psalm 26, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked, like at their table. Now, how do you interpret that? I think it's a good question. I, I don't think the Pharisees are not saying that they're, they're, they're not saying we're not sinners too and we don't need forgiveness too. I think their question is like, how, do we, how are we supposed to relate to people who very persistently and very deliberately transgress God's law? Like, how do we relate to people who on purpose as a way of life choose to continue to break God's law and sin? What are we supposed to do with that? Because the, the, the Old Testament seems to be teaching us uh, that, that the righteous should stay away from that kind of uncleanness. The Old Testament seems to be teaching us uh, that, that holiness comes by separation. And so I don't think the Pharisees are trying to be argumentative. 
with Jesus. I think they're taking the scriptures very seriously. Jesus, when you recline at the table with someone, you are identifying with them. Why are you identifying with these bad people? It's a good question. And Jesus answers them in verse 12 with this quick little saying that draws just from common sense. In a minute, he's going to use scripture to answer them, and that's what they really want him to do. But, but, but he starts with common sense in verse 12. Look at it. This is, this is his answer to why. But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician or a doctor, but those who are sick are the ones who need a physician. So why do I dine with all these people? Well, it's because I've given them a spiritual examination uh, and all is not well. My assessment is all is not well with them. My assessment is that they're sick. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's not saying, I dine with sinners because I condone sin. He's not saying, I dine with sinners because sin is okay. He's saying, I dine with sinners because sin has made sinners not okay. They are dying of a horrible disease, and they need help. And as a physician, the loving thing for me to do is not to say, you're sick, therefore you're quarantined to die in isolation by yourself. The loving thing for the physician to do is say, hey, I can do something about this. I can help you with this. It's common sense. Why does Jesus call sinners? Well, it's not to party with them and say, you do you. You keep living however you want. You're awesome. Jesus is not celebrating their sickness. He wants to make them well. He calls sinners so that he can give them actual righteousness, right? And no one is exempt from the sickness of sin. No one is exempt from the disease of sin. I think what's ironic in this story today is that those who are religious here, the Pharisees, uh, they seem to think that they don't have the disease of sin because they're not showing obvious outward symptoms because they're doing a lot of the right things. The irreligious, the tax collectors, their sin is on display for everyone. The symptoms of their sickness are out there, right? Greed, extortion, dishonesty. Everybody knows those guys are sinners. But here's the deal. The disease of sin manifests itself in different ways in different people. And and I'll just put it in, in maybe oversimplified terms. The irreligious, the tax collectors, are breaking all the rules because they don't think God cares, because they they, they don't think God cares about them. The religious in this story, the Pharisees, they're guilty of keeping all the rules because they think that's why God cares. They think that's why God uh, loves them and that God owes them something. Either way, Jesus, the great physician, looks into the lives of all people everywhere and says, all is not well. You've got a disease. You've got sin that's killing you, and you need a cure for it. That's the why behind his mission. The what is that he came to call sinners. The why is that people are dying of the disease of sin. But let's end with how. How does Jesus call sinners? Well, we've already seen it, haven't we? Uh, We've already seen um, that the way Jesus call sinners is that he gets up close to them, right? He draws near to them. He gets involved in their life in such a way that he gets to know them and they can get to know uh, him. Jesus doesn't just become friends with Matthew, the sleazy tax collector, right? 
he goes to the, Matthew's sleazy tax collector party with a bunch of other sleazy tax collectors. You know how incredible that is? Like if TMZ got a hold of the video of that, right? It would be awful for his reputation. Jesus yucking it up down at the club with a bunch of local lowlifes. That's what he's doing. It wouldn't be good for his credibility, but that's what he does. He gets up close. Now, the Pharisees have already confronted him on being at a party like this, but I don't know if you noticed this. They, they probably didn't go into the party. It says they didn't talk to Jesus directly at first. They talked to a few of his disciples. So they probably caught a couple of his disciples outside the party and said, hey, why is your teacher in there in a party like this? But they're not going in there, right? They're not going in there with the riffraff, the unclean. See, the Pharisees got close enough to make judgments about people, but not close enough to form a relationship with those people. They know all about those people in there, right? They know all about the things that they've done. They know all about their reputation. They know all about them, but they don't know them. Like the Pharisees have never taken time to step into the shoes of a guy like Matthew and to get to know his story and to, and to say, tell me about your experiences and to learn why, do you, why have you made the choices that you've made in your life? And why does sin and brokenness manifest itself in a way in your life in this particular way? They've never taken the time to do that. And so Jesus gives them a little scripture, a little Bible verse, and they're like, sweet, here we go. We love the scriptures, right? This is our wheelhouse because we're Pharisees, right? We know the scriptures backward and forward. Bring it on, Jesus. We know what you're going to do. We know what you're going to say. And Jesus, look at verse 13. Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call, I came not to call the righteous, uh, but sinners. Go, Pharisees, and learn what this means. I love that. <laughs> Jesus is saying to the know-it-alls, um, you don't know it all. You still got some more homework to do, right? Go and learn. Go back to your Bible and learn what this means. Now, it wasn't that they hadn't read this verse many, many times. This is from Hosea, one of their favorite prophets. They had heard this verse before, uh, Hosea 6.6. 6. God says to his people, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. See, the Pharisees had heard this verse before. They just weren't sure what it means. They didn't know how to apply this verse in their own life. And so what Jesus is telling them is, go and learn the heart of God. Go and learn the heart of God because this verse is, is telling us the heart of God. What does God want? What does God desire? He desires your mercy and not your sacrifice. In other words, God wants you to treat people the way he treats people. And one writer says that I read this week, says God is gracious before he's demanding. Isn't that great? God is gracious before he is demanding. The Pharisees, they see themselves as righteous because of how generous they are in their sacrifices for God. Their tithes, their offerings, their fasting, their prayers, but they're not generous toward people. And so God says to them, and I think God says to us, I want you to be merciful to people, not sacrificial for me, right? I, I, I want you to choose real people over ritual purity, I want you to choose loving people over like hyper-spirituality, right? I want you to choose compassion over being correct. 
Jesus, if you think about it, is the only fully righteous person in the story today. He's the only one who's doing it right with God, right? He's the only one who's believing all the correct things. He's the only one whose prayer life is perfect. His knowledge of Scripture is infallible. His moral practice is flawless. His worship is always genuine, never hypocritical. He's the only one. But he doesn't use that as an excuse to stand aloof, to stand back from people, to turn up his nose and say, you know what, that's a different class of people. I can't be around stinky sinners like that. That's not what he does at all. He gets up close to sinners. Again, not to condone it, but to change it. It's incredible. He does that, but he never dumbs down the truth. He never dumbs down God's standards. He never wavers in God's word. He always tells the truth. He just does it with grace, and he tells it to the person as if they are a person, with grace and with love. What is the mission of Jesus? It's to call sinners. Why does he call sinners? Because they have a disease that is killing them. How does he call sinners? He gets up close to them, right? A doctor can only deal with sickness if he gets in the midst of those who are sick. You can't do medical work virtually, right? You can't cure by long distance. You you have to get up close. If you think about it, Jesus ended up getting a lot closer to sin than he did by just having dinner with some sinners at a dinner party. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that Jesus became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, the physician got up to us so close that our disease rubbed off on him. He caught the disease and it ended up killing him instead of us, right? He, he took our sickness so that we could be well. He took our death so that we could have life. Our text today ends with this wonderful summary of Jesus' mission statement. Look at the end of verse 13. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Like, I didn't come to call people who have it all together because nobody does. I came to call people who are a mess. I came to call people who are broken. I came to call people who've blown it. I came to call people who are far from God. I drew near to them so that they could draw near to God. I came to save sinners from sin. That's my mission. And so what is our responsibility to that as sinners? I think it's just to accept Jesus' diagnosis of us as accurate and to receive by faith the cure he offers for the disease, which is what? Himself. I think by faith we are to trust in his death and resurrection on our behalf as our only hope out of this deadly disease called sin. Have you done that? Like, have you trusted Jesus in this way? Maybe you haven't, but I would only say to you, listen, be like Matthew. Like, follow Jesus, the friend of sinners, in simple faith, not exactly knowing where he's leading, but knowing that he's good and he can cure your greatest disease, your greatest problem. I think it's really interesting that Jesus gives us, as as the perpetual sign uh, of our fellowship with him, he gives us a meal. Like, he's still eating with tax collectors and sinners today. Like, he's about to do it. Except for this meal, uh, 
He gives himself as the meal. Like we experience his mercy by his sacrifice for us, don't we? Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. As he dined with a group of sinners, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you eat of it, remember me. Remember the fellowship that you have with me. In the same way, he took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's, it's poured out my blood for the forgiveness of sins, uh, for the forgiveness of many people's sins. Uh, and what he was saying is that the only medicine for the disease of sin is me. Take of me. Take me into yourself by faith that you might have life. Let's thank him for this. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.